All right, let's get to rocking and rolling. So we are starting a new course seminar today. It is a six-week course seminar that's going to last us through the rest of the year. Uh, and we're going to talk about Baptist essentials. So I just want to ask a question. What do you think makes a Baptist a Baptist? What do you think makes a Baptist a Baptist? Believer's baptism, okay. Sitting in the back row, okay. I like that. Going on more with baptism, that it's a, it's a voluntary profession of faith, not just something we do with infants. Okay, voluntary profession of faith, not just something we do with infants, okay. Any other ideas? Church is led by elders, okay. Regenerate church membership. Regenerate church membership. You're like having me in the back of the room. You can say certain things. It's kind of like, oh, you got a ringer back there. Um, you know, if it was just baptism, oh, Carol. Uh, they use the Bible in their sermons. Use the Bible in their sermons, okay. You know, if, it was, if, it's, if it's just about baptism, we could really cover that in one class. Why stretch it out to six classes? Um, boy, right? Uh, let, let me ask you a question. Why, why do you think this matters? Why do you think this matters? Notice I haven't answered the question yet. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? You had some good things, by the way. Why do you think this matters? It's important to know your history. Okay. Reading and living the word. Sorry? Reading and living the word. Reading and living the word. I'd also want you want to add, it's important to know your theology. Baptist ecclesiology, big word for church structure, is not something we do just because we're like, oh, you know, this is how we kind of think things make sense, you know. Preference thing. We actually think the Bible teaches this. So we want to know our theology of the church. And then I guess the question is how important is the theology of the church? Very important. Let me just tell you the way you do church both protects and promotes the gospel. Part of the reason why, by God's grace, we are part of a healthy church. I don't think it's prideful to say that. I think that it is just a recognition of God's grace to us. But one of the reasons we are a healthy local church is because we actually are careful in regards to how we structure the local church in accordance with God's word, which protects and promotes the flourishing of the gospel, which in turn blesses Christ's church. So part of the reason you're excited about Redeeming Grace Church is actually because of how we do church. And we want to get under that, and we want to show you why this is significant, why this is important, why this matters theologically, and for the health of the church, and for your health as a Christian. 
And we also want to talk about this right now because we need to make some constitutional changes just to update our constitution. And so we want you to understand theology before we do that. Does that make sense? So we need to tweak some of our constitution just to make it reflect how we really practice. It's a bit old and was created just at the very beginning of our church. So let's give you, let me give you a course overview. Number one, today we're going to talk about what is a church and church membership. Next time we're going to talk about ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. After that we're going to talk about elders and deacons. And then we're going to have two weeks on elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. We're going to get to the issue of authority in the context of the local church and the interplay between the elder's authority and the congregation's authority. Because if you look at scripture, what's actually clear is that it is not simply elders who have authority. Congregation has some authority too. How does that interplay? How does that interplay? That's a really important question, so we're going to talk about that in uh, weeks four and five. And then in week six, we're going to talk about the church gathered. What do we do when we come together? Does God's word have anything to say about how we spend our hour and a half together? Or is it just up to preference? Could we have a light show one week, a puppet show the next, a drama show the next? Is it all just kind of, and you laugh at that, right? But if God's word doesn't actually have anything to say about it, then what's to say we're not free to do those things? In other words, is what we do on church really just a matter of pragmatism? Or we think works in our context? We actually think the Word of God has spoken concerning what we do. Spoiler alert, we actually think God's Word has spoken, okay? Um, so that's why we do the things that we do. Uh, and again, that's part of the reason why our church is healthy by God's grace. So let's just jump in, and I want to encourage you to be faithful to come to this. I want to encourage you to recruit your friends to this. You're like, I want to recruit you to the most exciting thing possible. A Sunday school class on Baptist Essentials. All right? Appreciate that laugh. Uh, so, encourage your brothers and sisters to come to this. This is good for their soul. Okay, so what is church? Number one, let's just talk first about what church is not. What church is not. Anybody got any ideas of what church is not? I know I have some there, so you can cheat. It's cool. But, a building. Yeah, it's not a building. So, sometimes when I'm feeling, when I'm like really kind of nerding out theologically, I'll say, welcome to the gathering of Redeeming Grace Church. Why do I say that? Why do you think I say welcome to the gathering of Redeeming Grace Church? Instead of welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. You're referring to the body instead of the building. I'm referring to the body instead of the building. So that's why I'm feeling particularly nervous. Um, I think it's okay to say welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. But sometimes I say welcome to the gathering of Redeeming Grace Church. Sometimes when I'm driving by, on, you, you just have to pray for my kids. You know, Sometimes when I'm driving by the church, I say, hey, there's the church facility! Because <laughs> it's not the church. Church is you guys, out and about, being the church in the world over the course of the week. So there's the church building. Uh, what are other things in which the church is not? Televangelist. A televangelist? What do you mean? Uh, some guy on TV with a big P.O. box that tells you to preaches on TV. Okay. Uh, I would also want to add the church is not... Uh, anything on the internet. You can't do, you know how, you know how COVID made us say this really, really silly thing? We're going to do church online this morning. There's actually no way you can do that, okay? You can't do church online. You can't do church just by listening to the sermon afterwards. 
Um, you can only do church in person because in because the church is the people and the gathering of the people. Allah, First Corinthians chapter eleven through fourteen, Paul gives instructions: when you come together, the church is a gathering of people that come together. So the church is fundamentally physical, real, communal. It is not online. It is not mediated. It is not possible to have church online. Uh, I understand COVID just forced that, uh, but we wanted to cut it off just as soon as possible because we didn't want to promote any thinking that the church can be online because it can't. Any other thoughts about what church is not? A social club. A social club. Okay. Give me some ideas of social clubs. The church is also not like two guys sitting in a deer stand praising Jesus for his goodness. Like, it's, that's a misnomer, you know, to say, be out hunting in the morning and be like, man, we're just praising God. We did church. We did church uh, here today. No, no, I understand the thought, but that's actually not accurate, okay? You didn't do church. Uh, you skipped church for hunting. That's what you did, okay? Um, so... But I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody. Uh, I'm just saying, okay? I came from Texas where it was like, for a whole two months, it was like, where did everybody go in November? Uh, you know, and I don't think that's healthy, by the way. Uh, it's, it's a reality. Um, it's, all, yeah, it's also not uh, what's called a... Um, English is leaving me right now. Uh, FCA, Young Lions, Campus Crusade for Christ, those are parachurch ministries. Parachurch is not the church. Um, it's a church-like organization, but it's not the church. All right, that's, that's what church is not. Uh, I say that because sometimes I think we actually get confused about what church is. Just like we think, well, ch- what church is is obvious, isn't it? Well, then you start asking questions like, what's breakfast? You know, is breakfast the time that you eat, or is breakfast the food that you eat? You know, is it like do you eat breakfast for dinner, in which case is it really breakfast? You just got to start to think that's a dumb question. I get it. I get it. But I think we just assume church instead of actually understand the church. We need to understand church. So here's what church is. It is an assembly at root. The Greek word for church is assembly, ecclesia. And that word means assembly or group of people. So it is a group of people at a minimum. Now, I also want to tell you, it's a, defi- it's a clearly defined group of people. It is not just an amorphous blob of people or a loose association of people. It's actually, church is a clearly defined community. And you see that in the New Testament. Certain people are known to be part of the church. Certain people are known to be not part of the church. And that makes sense of texts like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. If you recall in Matthew 18, if there's an unrepentant sinner, he is to be removed from the church. He is no longer in the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, likewise, there's an unrepentant sinner. Paul says, remove such a one from among you. So the church is a defined community, is a defined community, such that some are in and some are not in. 
It also, while we don't know if the early church kept a list of members of particular churches, the idea is actually not unheard of. The early church kept lists of widows. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, let a particular widow not be enrolled in the list. In other words, a list of widows that the church is responsible to care for unless she meets Yea, such requirements. So there was actually a list of widows kept by churches of which widows were eligible for care by the church. So lists were not absolutely foreign to the idea of the New Covenant. And then, I'm sorry, the New Testament. So too, there is a majority that excommunicated the erring brother, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. Paul says the punishment inflicted by the majority is enough. Well, how can you have a majority? The only way you can have a majority is if there's an understanding of who's actually part of this group. If there's no defined understanding of who's part of this group, then you can't have a majority. So there was a clear, defined understanding of who's part of this church. So the church is an assembly. The church is a clearly defined community. You see that in the New Testament. You also see it in the Old Testament. So... From God working with Noah and his family, from God working to Abraham and his descendants, to the nation of Israel, God has always chosen to maintain a distinct and clearly separate people. What were some of the things that made Israel distinct and clearly separate from those who were not his people? Hit me. Different food. Different food, okay? Circumcision. Circumcision. What else? Worship one God. Worship one God. How about who they marry? Restrictions on any kind of intermingling. Say that again, Eric. Restrictions on any kind of intermingling with other groups around them. Yeah. What's the point? God has always maintained a distinct community for himself. And it's obvious. It's supposed to be obvious. And there's certain acts which cause you to be cut off from among your people. Yes. Yes, if you were to uh, attempt to participate in the Passover without being circumcised, that would be one of those, okay? Um, so, and essentially the point is, a church is a, is a gathering, okay? And, and it's a clearly defined gathering, and you can see that from the Old Covenant to the New, that God has always been about maintaining a distinct, clear understanding of, of who's in and who's not in. This brings us to the idea of both a universal church and a local church. There's two senses in which the word church, ecclesia, is used in the New Testament. Okay, One is in a big 30,000 foot view sense, and the other is in a more particularized sense. The big 30,000 foot view sense is that ecclesia, church, means all those everywhere who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the universal church, okay? Some texts that show us this idea. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is that, is that speaking to just one particular church, say the church of Corinth, or the church of Ephesus, or the church of Galatia, uh, or the church of Cappadocia? Is that speaking of a particular Local church, or is it speaking of something else? This is where you answer. <coughs> something, else. something else. What is it speaking of? The 
universal. the universal church. All those everywhere who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So ecclesia is used in this universal sense, according to Matthew 16, 19. We see it as well in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The church universal. Paul was just going around with his, you know, with his Jewish guns, uh, basically just rounding up anybody who claimed Christ. Didn't matter what particular church they were a part of. He was just persecuting the church in general. Anyone who named the name of Christ. The universal church. Finally, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's probably one of the clearest references to the universal church. Christ loved his bride, the church. All those who would repent and believe in the gospel for forgiveness and life. He loved her and gave himself up for her. Universal church. Now, but believe it or not, most of the times ecclesia is used in the New Testament, it is not referring to the universal church. It instead is referring to the local church. Because everything that is universal must come down to the local. Isn't that true? If you want to love your wife, that actually like comes down. I think Brad just told Elisa that he does. That's good. He's one of your pastors. Know that one of your pastors wants to love his wife. That's good. Honey, where are you? I want to love you too. Uh, all right. Every husband in the room, what did you want, Joy? I want to love you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, but that comes down to Kenny. I think you're being smart. Uh, it comes down. To particulars. There's generalities, but it comes down to particulars. What are some particular ways in which you show love to your wife? We won't get into it. It's, it's not needed. But <laughs> the reality is if you're part of the universal church, you're going to be part of a local church. To say you're part of the universal church but not part of the local church is like saying you love your wife. You just don't live with her. Something's really weird okay, and really wrong. So the universal church always expresses itself, it outworks itself, it displays itself, it fleshes itself. What's another word I can use? I'll stop there. In local churches. And this is actually the vast majority of the use of the word in the New Testament. It refers to local churches. And each local church is in fact a church. Okay? A, a unified church. A whole church. Acts 14.23 And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Is that referring to the universal church or to local churches? Local churches. They appointed elders in every church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. 1 Corinthians 1-2. Is that the universal church or a, a particular Congregation of believers gathered together in a particular place at a particular time. It's the latter. To the church at Corinth. <coughs> Likewise, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So we're getting into the text that we actually have been working through ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 11 through 14. All about the church gathered because that's what churches do. Churches gather. Churches are a community that come together for various 
expressions of worship, discipleship, and gospel mission. And we're going to learn more about that. But this is a particular church that's gathering, and he's using Ecclesia in regards to this particular church. So, the church is both universal and local. Okay? Now, who makes up the church? Who, who makes up? Who is comprised of the church? Maybe don't look at the answers. What do you think? Who makes up the church? All believers in Christ. So, say it again. All believers in Christ. Believers in Jesus. Damien gets two points. Get that man a donut. Um, you don't have any. All right. The church is comprised of believers only. Brad said something very significant. He said regenerate church membership. This is actually a huge Baptist distinctive, more so than believer's baptism. One of the main distinctives of Baptist ecclesiology, of a Baptist understanding of the Bible, is that the church is comprised of regenerate church membership only. And this is actually, in the history of the church, quite a unique contribution of Baptists, which we'll see in just a moment. So, it's comprised of believers only. You can see that if you simply just take a, 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 a swath through these texts that I've written for you, which I won't talk about them now just for time's sake, but you'll be able to see that, that the church is only those who profess faith. If you do not profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are actually not part of the church. Here's why. The church is the body of Christ. Who's part of the body of Christ? The church is the body of Christ. Who's part of the body of Christ? Is an unbeliever part of the body of Christ? Is a child of a believer part of the body of Christ? If they haven't professed faith? No. No. The church is comprised of those who are believers only. We believe in regenerate church membership. Now, this is a difference between the Old Testament community of God and the New Testament community of God. And it's based upon the newness of the new covenant. Okay? Follow me here. This is important. In the Old Testament, you were part of the covenant community of faith. You were part of God's people. By virtue of birth into an Israelite family and circumcision, you were part of the people of God. In the Old Covenant, by virtue of birth into an Israelite family and by virtue of circumcision. Now, in the New Covenant, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, you are part of the New Covenant community by virtue of new birth. And by virtue of the circumcision of the heart. What did, so what did circumcision in the Old Covenant point to? Anybody have an idea? Anybody have an idea what circumcision pointed to? Some might say it pointed to baptism. I don't think it's right. It points to regeneration. It points to everything bound up in conversion. Do you remember what, what circumcision is? It's a rolling away of the foreskin of the flesh. By the way, in the Old Testament, this was always pointing towards a removal of the foreskin of the heart and the need to have a new heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, the Old Testament says. And be no longer stiff-necked. And what is the promise of the new covenant? 
It's that His Spirit will be inside of you, giving you a new heart that longs to walk in His ways. Circumcision in the Old Covenant points to the circumcision of Christ, which is conversion, which is where your old heart is put away, you have a new heart, the flesh is rolled off, you have a new life, and baptism is a representative of of that circumcision. Does that make sense? So circumcision actually doesn't point to baptism directly. Circumcision points to regeneration, conversion, becoming a Christian. Baptism is the sign that you have been, that you have received the circumcision of Christ. Does that make sense? So in the Old Covenant, you were part of the people of God by virtue of birth and circumcision. Those are both pointing towards the reality of the New Covenant, that you become part of the people of God by new birth, which is the circumcision of the heart. Which is conversion. Baptism is just a picture that those things have happened. Which, by the way, is why we baptize believers only. Because only baptized, only believers have received the circumcision of Christ. Only believers are part of the new covenant community. And thus, appropriate for them to receive the sign of being a part of the new covenant community. Which is baptism. And then the Lord's Supper. But we'll get into this. Get fired up about this. This is exciting stuff. If you're not exciting, if you're not excited, I forgive you. Um, now, this reality that you are part of the new covenant only by faith, and it's only those who are believers who are actually part of the new covenant, this is a unique contribution of Baptists to the church. Okay? This position is Contra Constantine. Anybody remember Constantine? Roman ruler. He had an interesting experience wherein he was converted, we think. And uh, he, he said, now the Roman Empire is what? Christian. We're Christians. The Roman Empire is Christians. So guess what? All of you, my subjects, you're Christians. And guess what? If you won't become Christians, it's really bad news for you. Okay? Um, So he believed that he could create a Christian empire. And Christianity was associated with just being a Roman. We're a Christian empire. You're now a Christian. That's really bad. Okay? And it's not true. Baptists would say, no, you're not not a Christian just by virtue of being a part of a Christian empire. You're only a Christian by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. So our Baptist understanding of this is contra Constantine and his errors. And Constantine and his errors flowed through the church until Baptists finally were like, no, no. Uh, But you can see that it flowed through the history of the church through several things. Our Baptist understanding of who's part of the church is actually contra the magisterial reformers as well. Does anybody know who the magisterial reformers are? Luther is a magisterial reformer. Who else? Calvin. Calvin is a magisterial reformer. Bonus points... Who knows what magisterial means? Magisterial reformers. Magisterial. The magistrate of the town. The magistrate. They believed that the church was also bound up with the civil magistrate. And to be a part of Geneva, Calvin believed himself to be pastor over you. You were part of this covenant community because the church and the magistrate were bound up together. This idea that Constantine had really started, he was falling in with that as well. And so 
Our Baptist understanding says, no, 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 no. You're not part of the covenant community by virtue of being part of a particular town where there's a church and a magistrate and a, and a pastor like Calvin, as great as Calvin was. By the way, if you've never read Calvin, he's actually unbelievably easy to read. Not unbelievably easy to read. That's <laughs> But if you read his institutes, they're actually quite readable. He was a pastor. And he wrote his institutes to train Christians. And I don't know if you noticed, he actually had essentially the most unbelievable pastoral internship program you could imagine. And he was sending out pastors to the ends of the earth to plant and revitalize churches. Calvin was no ivory tower theologian, cold and uncaring about the progress of the gospel. No, he was a pastor who knew that the only way to be a good pastor is to know your God and to know theology. And he wanted his people to know their God and know theology. And that's why he taught as robustly as he did. And he sent out pastors. What does it have to do with Baptist Foundations? Nothing. But it was an extra bonus point for being here. Tell your friends. So, our understanding of Baptist, the Baptist understanding of what it means to be part of the church is contra the magisterial reformers as well. It's also contra Roman Catholics. So, I just went to basic chaplain course. 15 minutes. I'm doing okay. Um, not really. Uh, just went to basic chaplain course. There were a couple of Roman Catholic uh, chaplains there. And I said, what's your understanding of the church? Um, and once we talked about a lot of different definitions, uh, what became clear to me is that they believe that everybody's part of the Roman Catholic Church, especially whoever's in their parish. They have responsibility for everybody, and everybody is, in a sense, a lapsed Catholic. They either don't know they're Catholic, because they are, because the Catholic Church is the only true church, and you're not part of it, you should be, but you are because you're over this area and I'm your pastor, whether you know it or not. So you're either not a Catholic, you should be, or you're a lapsed Catholic. So everybody's Catholic, um, which is not true, of course. So our understanding of who's part of the church is contra Roman Catholicism. It's also contra Presbyterians. Our Presbyterian brothers, we have so much in common with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. This is not one of them. Uh, our Presbyterian brothers believe that the covenant community is comprised of believers and their children. That their children are part of the covenant community. They understand they may not be regenerate, but they believe them to be part of the covenant community by virtue of being <coughs> born into a Christian home. Baptists do not believe that. We believe that the new covenant is fundamentally different, and the only way to enter into it is not by birth to Christian parents, but by new birth. So our understanding of who's part of the church is unique. Okay? And can anybody think about why it's important to understand who's part of the church and how that might contribute to the health of a church? Can anybody just strategize with me for just a moment? How significant is it that we understand who's actually part of the church? How important might that be? Any ideas? I know it's early. We want to grow our church so we know who to disciple and evangelize to. Okay. So, you know, older kids growing up, making sure that they are steering towards a profession of faith. Okay. Skyler? We have a responsibility to fellow members within the church, so we need to know who they are. Okay. Carol? We need to know who knows the truth. Okay. I like all this so far. I know what this is. If you don't have, if you don't have a Or they can corrupt the culture and create 
And in the church, how much more significant is that? If you, if you think non-believers are actually part of your church and you allow them to make decisions about doctrine and practice, what might be the implication for the purity of the gospel? Huge. Damien? I was thinking that the pastor and, and, or the elders need to know who they're responsible for. The elders need to know who we're responsible for. Yes. Very important. You guys have some great answers. Thank you. So what do local churches do? Uh, Baptistic understanding of what local churches do is that we gather together for worship. We gather together for mutual discipleship and oversight of one another's faith. We, We actually believe that we are responsible for one another. That's a unique Baptist contribution that we as members are mutually responsible for our discipleship and uh, progress towards the heavenly city. Why do you hear me talk about that? Because I'm a Baptist. Um, And then we also participate in the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what do Baptists do? We gather together for worship, for mutual discipleship, and for oversight, uh, and for participation in the ordinances. Now, the other thing that Baptist churches do is that we partner with other churches. Uh, this is another unique, uh, well, I should just say it's a, uh, it's a foundational tenet of Baptist theology. We are autonomous. What does autonomous mean? Somebody tell me. Self-guiding, self-responsible, self-governing. self-governing. Okay. We do not believe that there is an authoritative entity over and above that of the local church which is to guide and direct and, um, and declare what and how the local church should do its business. Does that make sense? This is contra almost every other form of church government. Okay? In Presbyterian, Presbyterianism, there is, uh, there is an elder board, but they, are, overse- they o- are overseen by a presbytery above them that does have doctrinal authority over that presbytery. Same with Methodism. Same with Episcopalianism. Same with Lutheranism. Same with Roman Catholicism. There are uniquenesses to each one of these. But Baptists particularly say, no, each local church is autonomous. And the elders and the congregation together are responsible for the health and vitality of that local church. And they are to guide and protect and promote the gospel. Um, Now, we're not, though, we're not individualistic. Okay? Baptist churches throughout the course of church history have associated with one another. So we believe that we are autonomous, but we are associating. So we don't just say, we have the truth, nobody else does, and we're going to do our own thing and, and whatever. Now, some, some of, of our Baptist brethren, and more say the fundamentalist movement, would be like that. But even they, they are associating just with themselves, okay? <laughs> um, so Baptists are autonomous but associating. We associate with other like-minded churches for, historically, two main purposes. One, missions. Two, ministerial training, okay? Um, missions. And ministerial training, typically Baptists associate for those two purposes. Uh, So we willingly partner. We willingly join hands with other like-minded churches. We recognize that they do not have authority over us, nor we authority over them, but we willingly join hands with them, share funds in order to 
educate and train pastors, and do mission works. This is essentially what the Southern Baptist Convention does. It's a little bit messy, as with all denominational life. And we are part of the Baptist General Conference. Baptist General Conference does it as well. Okay? Um, any questions so far? Although I don't have a lot of time. Baptists just look at those creeds and, and they say, yes, that's part of our heritage. The reality is, as time has gone on, there's just been more theological clarity and definition that's always, that kind of always just happens. So Baptists say, that's, we're part of that Reformation heritage. And we are part of that even before the, well, all the creeds, the Reformation just grabbed a hold of and said, yes, we've lost sight of these creeds, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. This, these have all been, the clarity of them has been lost. We believe them, the Reformation says. And then from the Reformation flowed um, greater thought about ecclesiology and the structure of the church. So Baptists would just say, you know, this is, these are our convictions in regards to the nature and structure of the church. We believe and are in one accord with the fundamentals, uh, the creeds. Does that make sense? Autonomy is a relatively new innovation in Autonomy, yes it is, actually. Um, but autonomy, I don't think it actually was in the local, in the uh, in the New Testament, but um, uh, but autonomy it relates to self-governance. We're not saying autonomy as in uh, theological autonomy. We, we we find ourselves quite connected with the history of the Reformation. Let me talk a little bit about membership because this is also significant to Baptist identity. Is this idea of membership? First of all, if you're looking for a thou shalt become a member of a local church in the New Testament, you're not going to find that. However, that does not mean that the concept, the truth of membership is not in the New Testament. It is everywhere, similar to the Trinity. You're not going to find a verse that says the Trinity. But even in our, even in our text today, we're going to see the Trinity. You just have to look for it, and you'll see it. So too with membership. Membership is essentially a commitment to a particular body of Christ wherein you commit to being discipled and discipling one another. Um, that is membership. And you see evidences for membership throughout the New Testament. Number one, individual Christians are called members of the body. You're like, yeah, I'm part of the, I'm part of the body, the universal body. What I would say to that is that always has to be particularized somehow. That always has to enflesh itself somehow. That also has, that has to be worked out somehow. Just like you say you love your wife, you need to live with your wife. If you love the church, you need to actually be a member of a local church. Not just say that you're part of those who believe in Jesus. You need to show that by being a part of a particular church that loves Jesus and is committing to proclamation of the gospel and discipleship. So individual Christians are members of the body, so Christians should be members of local congregations. Christians are called to love and uh, to love each other in real and tangible ways. How, how can you really love and care for one another in real and tangible ways if you're not actually bumping up against one another and rubbing shoulders with one another and living life with one another on a regular basis. 
The, the answer is you, you can't really. Hence the idea of membership, that you're actually committed to a particular group of people that you will see on a regular basis. And thus, thus you, you see needs and can meet needs. Thus you know where someone is at spiritually so that you can pray and minister to them. Thus, all of these one another commands are particularized and express themselves in the context of a local church. Uh, local churches, and these are all just kind of strands of, of evidence for church membership, not one of which is absolutely, you know, boy, the case is made. But I think, I think all, all of them together make a pretty compelling case for church membership. So individual Christians are members of the body. Christians are called to love one another in real and tangible ways. Local churches are such that one could be either in or out. You see that in church discipline. And so that advocates for a clear understanding of who's really a member and who's not, who's committed, who hasn't. Otherwise, how can you cast someone out if it's not clear that they're in? Does that make sense? So the idea of a clear commitment to one another, which is membership. Um, Also, elders are called to shepherd and lead those as those who will give an account. So, Damien, I think you brought this up earlier. Wasn't it you that brought this up earlier? Um, So... In the New Testament, we're clearly called to give account for those we shepherd. How do we know who we shepherd? How, how do the elders of Redeeming Grace know who we shepherd? We need, we need to know who we're shepherding. Um, and so, hence, membership. Because membership tells us, it's, it's, a clear and under, it's a clear and identified line wherein somebody crosses and says, I'm a member of this church. I want you to shepherd me. And we say, fantastic. We know that we, we want to shepherd you as well. We want to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities to those who are here and not members, but we don't believe we have the same level of responsibility. Let me be clear. Um, because membership is, is kind of the—it's kind of putting a ring on it, if you will. Um, it's where we know, ah, you're one of our sheep. And, and we're actually going to be judged by God based on how we shepherd you. So membership is very helpful for us. Um, Christians are called to submit to their leaders. So it's actually very helpful to you. Who is your leader? Who are your pastors? Membership makes clear to you. It, it's, it's these elders. Uh, it's these men. And then church discipline as well uh, advocates for church membership. So I kind of just put there, bottom line, membership is where the one another commands of the New Testament are particularized and carried out. And again, remember, what am I doing here? I'm really trying to show you that the way we do church is not just a, a matter of preference. We are trying to order and structure our church in accordance with the teachings of the Bible because that's what protects and promotes the flourishing of the gospel. Now, let's just take our concluding 30 seconds uh, and talk about some of the blessings of church membership. Take a look at that list and then just popcorn with me for a second. What are some of the ways in which church membership blesses you Individually, blesses your brothers and sisters, blesses your leaders, and blesses unbelievers. Any ideas on any of those? Just popcorn some ideas. More than one teacher uh, for your children. Mm. It blesses our families because I know that other people are looking out for the lives of my children. Praise God. Yes. 
you're part of the church when you believe and are baptized and part of the church is representative of being part of the universal church, the church which will be with Jesus in heaven. So if we say to you, I don't think you can become a member of the church because you're not a Christian. What we're saying to you is, you're also not going to be in heaven. That is actually a blessing to unbelievers so that they know, I'm not a Christian. I'm not bound for heaven. But I can be. Other blessings of church membership. Praise God. Praise God. A couple of more. Everybody else is just yearning to get in to benefit from this. Unbelievable. You're blessed by the wisdom of the plurality of members and believers, fellow brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Two more. Hit me. Yes. Yes. That commitment brings that, right? It's, it's more than a loose association. Here sometimes, not sometimes. As long as it suits me. Kind of like the teaching. No, no, no. Membership is covenanting and saying, I'm, I'm here for you. And you're here for me. And what are we here for? To make sure we get to heaven. To make sure we get to heaven. That's probably a good place to stop since we're out of time. Let me just pray for us real quick. Come back next week. Invite your friends. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Are these just little technicalities? No. They're actually significant means whereby the gospel is displayed, protected, and promoted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, even in, especially in, how we are to gather together. In Jesus' name, amen.